1: Hi everyone, welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak speaking to you from my living room.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. As we continue our social distancing during the coronavirus crisis and try to navigate the practical and emotional challenges of an uncertain landscape, many of us are finding solace by turning to nature, spending time in the garden, taking long walks in the park while staying six feet apart, of course, Dusting off binoculars for bird watching, or just doubling down on a dose of comfort from a snuggling dog or purring cat.
1: I mean, let's face it, there's nothing like animals and maybe some greenery to help quiet the nerves and ease loneliness. And we might also come to better appreciate what we normally overlook the quiet and not so quiet life of plants and animals. After all, they have their own worries, their own stresses. And in fact, most creatures can easily identify with our feeling that the world can be a scary place.
2: So we thought it might be nice to put the human-centric stories aside for a moment and find out how other living creatures make sense of the world, what they have to say, and how they say it. What follows are a few of our favorite interviews with researchers who investigate what high-frequency squeals, chemical pulses, and electrical activity reveal about the world around us, and Let's put it this way, you are not the only species who is stressed out by social distancing. This episode is, let's take a pause, and fittingly, we begin by going straight to the dogs.
1: Many people are paying especially close attention to the news cycle these days, But your nose for news is just not a match for your pooches.
2: For a dog, the air is filled with information. They have hundreds of millions more olfactory receptors in their snouts than we do, making them serious sniffers.
1: Dogs can detect traces of explosives and even certain cancers, says dog cognition researcher Alexandra Horowitz, author of Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell.
2: I followed my nose to Dr. Horowitz's campus office at Barnard College, and I assumed that after hello, we would go meet the dogs at the dog cognition lab because I knew it was in the area. I was in for a surprise. Alexandra, we're in your office at Barnard, but... The dog cognition lab, I understand, is nearby, somewhere in the vicinity. If I were a dog, I could probably
3: sniff it out. (laughs) Well, we should maybe revise because this is really the dog cognition lab. The dog cognition lab is anywhere where we are studying dogs, essentially. So we do actually do some behavioral tests in this room. There's tape on the floor, so we are videotaping and monitoring what the dogs are doing. But I also study dogs out in their natural environment, in the parks. I go to owners' homes, I study dogs there. So kind of any place that there are dogs could be the Dog Cognition Lab.
2: Okay, so the Dog Cognition Lab was right under my nose. Dogs have some of the makings of good scientists, says Dr. Horowitz. They're curious about everything. They can't stop collecting data But since dogs don't write up their conclusions about what they smell for a refereed science journal, Dr. Horowitz studies their sniffing behavior to make inferences about their cognition and what
3: sniffers they are. Dogs have now been trained, detection dogs have now been trained to tell us when they notice all manner of object. And really, most objects have a smell, potentially, if you have the equipment to detect it. So... That is everything from, you know, explosive detection dogs, there are cancer detection dogs, there are dogs who can detect bed bugs, of course, and any other varieties, many other varieties of insects. There are scat detection dogs, in other words, dogs who are being used by researchers to find the scat, the excreta of wildlife populations that they're trying to canvas but that are hard to see. There are diabetes detection dogs who can tell when blood sugar is dropping. So really, you could put their nose in any direction. Just tell them what it is that you want them to notice, and they'll notice it for you.
2: Dogs can detect all manner of objects, as you say. And how much do they need to detect? They need just a tiny bit. And, and, and how, how low does that that concentration go?
3: Right, they often need only a very little bit. So I think it's something on the order of a picogram, a, a trillionth of a gram of TNT or other explosive for an explosive detection dog to to notice it. That's at a far uh, lower threshold that we can detect it. We have decent noses, but we don't bother to sniff things. The detection threshold is really different depending on the odorant. So Some objects, they really need that minimal amount. Others, they might need more like a millionth of a gram, much, much more.
2: I'd like to pick up on something you said of dogs can detect cancer. And I understand that they can detect certain kinds of melanoma. And you also said diabetes. So I wonder if that suggests that we are emitting something from our skin. Is it our skin that they're smelling?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. We don't really know, actually, what it is in the cancerous cells that the dogs are noticing. But they do seem to mark a difference. So the initial reports of dogs who were detecting cancers were actually inadvertent melanoma detection dogs. These were owned dogs, not trained in anything, who had been kind of bothering their owner's legs or arms. And after months, the owner goes to the doctor, finds out um, they have a melanoma in that area. And because of stories like that, which were published in The Lancet, researchers started doing dedicated testing to see, oh, if you give a dog samples of exhaled breath, can they detect the exhaled breath that has, uh, that come from a lung cancer patient? If you give them plasma from the body of, of an ovarian cancer patient, can they learn to distinguish it from a person who doesn't have ovarian cancer? And they can do that. But what it is exactly in those samples that they're detecting is actually an open question. In fact, there are researchers trying to figure it out. There are hundreds of odorants in those samples. What's the one or the combination of them that the dog detects? People would like to know because they'd like to create an electronic nose that could find that same odorant, but they they haven't done that yet.
2: Dogs are very good at detecting their owner's smell, but if we really scrubbed ourselves down or maybe put on perfume or did something to our own scent. Would we succeed in masking the smell from our dogs?
3: I, no, I don't think so. There's a, there's a scene in Cool Hand Luke where the character is trying to escape from prison, the, the dog, their dogs are after him and he's trying to escape and he crosses rivers so that they can't catch his trail, of course they can catch his trail, and he puts down Pepper and if this works to get the dogs off his trail it would not work, you could cover yourself in Pepper, the dog, you still smell the way you smell. I think what that points out is the difference between our human understanding of how we or others smell. We think of it as like an event, like, oh, I smell now. No, 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 like it's a state. We always smell, like we have a smell. Things have a smell. That's okay, that's who you are. What is interesting, too, about
2: the difference between dogs and humans is we, as you say, we we think that it's binary. Things smell or they don't smell, but we also render a judgment on those smells. Coffee and burritos, for example, smell great. Other things, garbage, do not smell good. But there's not a lot of in-between. But you write that for a dog, this is not so. Uh, They're not rendering a judgment. They're not things that they like to smell or things that they don't like to smell.
3: I think for the most part, that's the case. I think of an analogy to our visual system. When we open our eyes and look at the room in front of us, we're seeing the room. It's information. We're not saying, oh, that's a good white. Oh, that's not good gray. That's, oh, that's very curvy. I don't like that. we're, We're just acknowledging it, it is the fact of the world hitting us through our eyes. For the dog, the room is rod of odors, so it's information at that same level. That isn't to say they wouldn't make any qualitative distinctions, but we do know, and in fact almost any dog owner could testify, that dogs are often not disgusted by the types of things we think are disgusting. Even if they roll in it. Even if they roll in it, exactly. There are lots of, and rolling is presumably um, an acknowledgement of how delightful they find that smell, that they want themselves to be perfumed with it.
2: Now, I wonder if we could talk about just how it is that the dogs are able to do what dogs do and what their olfactory receptors are like. And if you could take us inside the snout of a dog, what is going on there that makes them such powerful sniffers?
3: Well, we don't know exactly what it is that makes them such good sniffers. There are a lot of components. One is, as you alluded to, the olfactory receptor cells. So at the back of the nose, their nose and ours, there are little cells entirely dedicated to grabbing odors out of the air. And they simply have hundreds of millions more cells in the back of their nose than we do. So presumably, that is one big component of why they are detecting things and acting on things that they detect much much more than we typically are Um, their whole nose is really organized in order to smell well so they have that long snout which has all these turbinate bones in them which are basically just bones some of which might also have those olfactory receptor cells on them but also they can warm and humidify the air coming in making it easier to pull out the odors and filter out anything which would irritate the nose and damage those cells I imagine it like a roller coaster ride for the air tumbling through the nose. We don't have that long snout that allows for that big wind-up, basically, before the delivery in the olfactory receptor cells area.
2: So they take these deep breaths, and they can hold it, and they can hold the, the odor in their nose way at the back and then process what's going on. And they also have stereoscopic nostrils. Is that how you put it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Their no- their nostrils work independently to grab a different area of the odor space. So with that ability, they can actually sort of render the world in 3D, three olfactory dimensions.
2: Can you elaborate on that? So a dog can say, to my left is the coffee shop and to my right is my owner. I mean, is it? Is it? can they distinguish in that
3: way? Sure, they can tell the direction of a source odor, just in the same way that our eyes overlap in the visual field. They both get a different little snapshot of the world. It overlaps, but then the brain reconstructs. Well, what does that mean? If if I'm getting an image from my right, a far right eye, but I'm not getting it from my left eye, it's probably on my right. And the same thing with odors. Um, As they're passing by, you'll get a stronger amount from one nostril than the other, and the brain can use that information to say, and the source of the odor is to the side. We've
2: all had the awkward moment when dogs either come up and, and sniff us, Or they sniff each other's rears. And I'm wondering what kind of information they're getting from those sniffs.
3: Yeah, with dogs, they're getting a lot of identity information. And that includes sex. If it's a female, uh, whether they're in estrus or recently in estrus. Probably things such as how long ago they last ate, maybe what they ate. Their health. You know, we wear our health and our smell as those cancer patients indicate, but anyone who is sick um, has a different smell. So all that information about who the dog is, is what the dog is getting. It's just like when we give each other a a handshake or a glance when we meet. We're getting some information about all those things. With humans, I think that where dogs sniff are where we're the smelliest, basically. And it's information, again, not that they're going to use in the same type of way that they'd use with a conspecific, but information about who we are.
2: They're not trying to make us feel awkward at that dinner party when we <laughs> enter.
3: They, they're awfully good at doing it, but I think that they're innocent. They're not trying to, right? I, I find it fascinating. We're so nervous about smell and smelling as humans that not only does a dog smelling your crotch feel awkward, like, oh no, now everybody knows I have a crotch, or I don't know what it is. But also now I feel like it's often the case that a a person's dog sniffing another person's dog's rump is viewed by the people often as impolite where they're not even being sniffed right but it's that some by extension my dog's interest in your dog's rump is somehow reflecting on us that to me is mostly a testament of our unease with smell.
2: In fact you write that our discomfort with the dog's sniffing the world has prompted some owners to pull their dogs back. And so dogs aren't sniffing as much as they would like to because they're getting the signal that they shouldn't be sniffing, although that's what they do.
3: Right. I don't think we're ready to accept often that dogs are sniffing creatures. We want them to be polite, civilized creatures who don't do that animalistic thing like sniffing each other. And I found that um, a lot of dogs who are coming into my studies where I'm basically asking them to sniff something I put on the floor, um, a sample of their own pee. Other times it's a quantity of food. It's it, They're usually benign stimuli. A lot of dogs who come in with their owners won't approach the samples. And I think it's because the owners have been spent a lifetime telling that dog not to sniff things. Actually, when we pull our dog away from those smells, we're telling them they're not allowed to, you know, use that perceptual organ. And, they, and they're pretty cooperative. They kind of stop using it as much. That's sad. Yeah. I mean, they can learn to use it again, right? And when they come upon this, you know, it must be like discovering your own superpower.
2: Now, I was amazed to learn that dogs can smell... Well, it's not, it's not surprising that they could smell the movement of air through the room, but because they can do that, you write that they can actually smell the time of day. So I'm wondering if you could tell us the difference between how afternoon and morning smell.
3: Yeah. Or what would a dog say? <laughs> I wish I knew exactly. But I think I can almost imagine a little bit. It's like the way of season's have a different smell, right? We might notice the advent of spring.
2: But a lot more is happening when the seasons change than in our living room throughout the day.
3: Well the temperature of the room changes all day, right? I think that's what it is. It's that air flow through the day is pretty reliable. Um, air rises along the walls as the room is warmed and then it kind of hugs the ceiling and then starts falling and it kind of crashes into itself imagery of this is kind of wonderful, like uh, backwards waterfalls of air going up the walls and then then crashing down as a waterfall in the middle of the room. So I haven't seen an example of how dogs do use this to tell a time of day, but we can see that dogs are attuned to odors in different parts of the room at different times of the day. So they're presumably marking the day by this airflow, this natural airflow. Um... So for instance, one's own smell in the room will be moved to the side of the room in your absence as the day goes on.
2: When you were going through the self-directed experiment on trying to improve your own smelling ability so you could smell like your dog, um, did you ever sit in a room and, and try to see if you could smell the different times of day?
3: I haven't sat in the room the way dogs might sit in the room all day and try to smell the difference. I don't think I have the acuity for that. But I have done other and I regularly do other exercises still that try to bring smell in prominently. So when I wake up in the morning, I try to smell how late it is, you know, if i've if I don't set an alarm, so and if, wait, wait,
2: hang on, how, how do you smell how how late it is? what what is that's it. what's six a m versus nine a m?
3: That's exactly what you're trying to smell. You're trying to smell kind of the warmth of the day, how much of the day has happened. There is a smell in a room at a certain time of day, and I think you might notice it if it was different. It's that type of thing, and I also try to figure out if there's anyone in the bed with me. You know, our dogs sleep with us, and so I have my husband, my cat, and two dogs, and my son, who might be in the bed in the morning. Without hearing or seeing anything, I try to just notice by smell if anyone's in the bed. And sometimes I can do it, not not reliably, not all the time. But that's the type of thing I try to do to imagine a little bit what it might be like to be that dog.
2: I assume you've invested in a king-size bed? <laughs> yeah,
3: it's the biggest bed you can get. Yeah.
2: Alexandra Horowitz, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure.
1: Alexandra Horowitz is a dog cognition researcher at Barnard College and the author of Being a Dog: Following the Dog into a World of Smell. Well, I have to say, you know, two things about that really uh, made an impression on me, Molly, to begin with, the sensitivity of these dogs. You know, one nanogram of material is enough for a dog to be able to smell it. That seems like, you know, pretty good, <laughs> pretty good sensitivity to me. But the other thing is the fact that they can use their nostrils individually to kind of map out the world around them, the world of smell. I mean, just the way I presume somebody who is visually impaired maps out the world on the basis of sounds, these dogs are doing it on the basis of smell.
2: Well, that's right, and I like the idea of making sense of your world through other inputs.
1: Well, you are not the only one who suffers the discomfort of isolation. A whale of a story coming up as we tune in to tales of adaptation and survival from other living creatures. It's Let's Take a Pause on Big Picture Science.
0: Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
1: We are not the only animal that doesn't like social distancing, the narwhal which is a medium-sized whale that lives in the waters of the Arctic, doesn't like to be separated from its buddies or its family for very long either. While we text or teleconference, the narwhal reaches out to others using echolocation clicks and vocalizations, both of which can travel effectively over long distances in the water. Now, that may make their communications the original clickbait, and the oceans are kind of worldwide wet, but... Either way, these creatures endure their own stresses, navigating a changing environment.
2: This beach in Aptos, California, is the closest that I'll get to narwhals today. These animals are diving and swimming in the cold, briny waters of eastern Canada and Greenland, surfacing tusks first in a gap of Arctic sea ice. That long snaggletooth of the males makes the narwhal distinctive and also the weirdest among whales. But it's only one reason this animal intrigues scientists.
4: My name is Susanna Blackwell. I'm a bioacoustician with Greenwich Sciences.
2: Dr. Blackwell and her team designed an ingenious method of recording narwhals. They attach suction cups to the dorsal ridge of a few whales. Then they attach acoustic devices to the cups using a tie that was designed to dissolve after a few days. The tie dissolved and set the acoustic devices free, which Dr. Blackwell and her team used GPS to recover.
4: We're discovering narwhals make all kinds of sounds that we didn't know about because uh, we'd never recorded them in the way
2: we have. In some ways, it's a race against time thawing ice due to climate change is opening up the arctic to new sounds that of cruise ship engines and the seismic soundings of oil surveyors we're concerned about the effects of man-made
4: sounds on narwhals in the arctic
2: let's move out of the wind and go to dr blackwell's home it's just a short walk away she says she has a surprise okay come up i'm going to show you the narwhal tusk you have a
4: narwhal tusk here in your home yes I, I have to mention right away to those who may be horrified to hear this, that this is actually a museum-quality replica. Because narwhal tasks are definitely not legal in the U.S. You cannot import them, you cannot export them from... A Greenland. And we're looking at a tusk that looks like a spear, and what is that, six feet long? Yes, it's six feet, and it was actually the small one of the two I could have bought. They had another one that was nine feet long. What's the tusk made out of? Well, it's a a tooth, so it's ivory.
2: Um, This one is made out of epoxy. (laughs) It's important to remind us that this is not an actual narwhal tusk, but it is still impressive. Narwhals make an array of sounds. It's not just one sound. Can you just introduce us to the kinds of sounds they are? We're going to listen to them in a moment. But what kinds of sounds do narwhals make? They Well, they make sounds that are
4: click-based, that sound uh, like a series of clicks in all kinds of patterns. They make whistles. They make sounds that sound like uh, squawks even a little bit growly type
2: sounds. Can you tell us how the sounds work with the animal's ability to echolocate?
4: Yeah, so the, the fundamental basic sound in the narwhal repertoire is a click, an echolocation click. And then the animal, before it does another click, it listens to hear the echo from that first click. As it comes back, the echo will have information in it that can help the animal determine whether what
2: echoed back was a squid or a fish or the seafloor. So the click is one of the sounds they make and also the sound that they're listening to. Um, the other sounds, the growls and the buzzes and things, those have another purpose which we'll get to.
4: Yeah, so many of the other sounds are actually made up of clicks. If you can make a click, you can make them faster or slower and, and you know, turn them into other kinds of vocalizations. Uh, but, but they're not the only ones. As I said, there are also whistles and some other squeaks and stuff that uh, um, are hard to
2: describe. We're going to listen to some of the animals that you recorded. They have lovely names. Where was Thora when she made the sounds we're about to hear? Uh,
4: I believe she was on a dive. She was on her way to start feeding, And she was making these calls that are called burst pulses that are made up of clicks that are repeated very quickly and that then get that sort of tonal quality, this,
2: "Eh," you know. Do we know why she's making this
4: particular sound? We don't, but uh, these burst pulses have an individual quality to them. That is, no two animals seem to make the same birth pulses. But it's unique to that animal. It's unique to that animal, yeah. It seems to be unique. They are often produced... If the animal is isolated, for example, and is trying to find its buddies, uh, they may produce this sound. And, And if that sound is linked to the animal, you can immediately see how it would be a way for them to get together again, because they heard, you know whatever, Johnny, calling, and so they know it's him because they recognize his call. We'll hear a different sound from Frida. The reason I included that particular sample uh, was that I thought it sounded funny. It sounded like one of those things that kids blow in. A trumpet? Yeah, like a trumpet or something, and... And this is not one of those burst pulses. So this is just one of the many other sounds that narwhals make. What part of the body of the narwhal makes these sounds? Well, it's structures that all toothed whales have that are behind the melon in the head. They look like little lips. In fact, in sperm whales, they're called monkey lips. And it's uh, using pressurized air that they, they you know, I don't, I'm not sure how exactly it works, but uh, they make, make these clicks like that. You say it's in the head. It's, yes. So it's not in like their throat or no. their chest. No. It's
2: in their head. Yeah,
4: yeah. And behind that bulbous thing that's called the melon. They're saying something, and what they're
2: saying has some intentionality.
4: Yes. To give you an example, a mother may call her calf over uh, because she detected some
2: danger or something. One of the many reasons that you did this recording project, you're concerned with human-made sound in the ways in which it might be disrupting their environment. And what kind of sounds are we talking about?
4: I think I need to mention the fact that the reason it's becoming a problem is because the Arctic has less ice than it used to. And so for centuries, eons, narwhals were protected simply because their environment was so difficult to get to. But now that there is less and less ice in the summer, there is more and more human activities. There are boats, there are cruise ships, there are uh, industries, either mining exploration or petroleum exploration that is taking place. And this is bringing in all kinds of sounds that the narwhal did not evolve with. We're concerned that uh, these activities may have effects on the animals that could be detrimental to the survival, the long-term survival of, of the species.
2: One of your particular concerns is the air gun pulse. Where are air guns used?
4: So air guns are used by the seismic industry that when they are looking for oil and gas in the seafloor. And, uh, and they can do that by uh, utilizing these loud sounds that are directed down towards the seafloor and that bounce off the different layers. And then these echoes are analyzed back, sort of a little bit like the whales themselves do with echolocation. And and so they can come up with whether there are petroleum reserves down in the seafloor. And those sounds are very high amplitude, so they're, they're
2: basically loud. If it weren't for these human-made sounds that are now echoing through the Arctic. What's the loudest sound that a narwhal would hear?
4: Well, actually, the icebergs that are cracking are incredibly loud. The thing is, an iceberg will crack and maybe crack again a minute later, but then that's it. It's not like seismic exploration often takes place over, sometimes, weeks, continuously, where they are every 10 or 20 seconds Uh, doing another shot. And those
2: sounds could do two things for the whales, disrupting their ability to communicate with each other, um, but also it would be frightening for the Mm animal. So it might be going through over and over, being frightened and startled, being stressed out by these sounds. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, sure enough. And, And in the studies we've done to date, we've discovered one bay where the animals seem to do a lot of feeding. They always seem to go there and do a lot of feeding. And just to give you an example, if that is where the sound source was, and they left that bay, well, then maybe they wouldn't be feeding as much, uh, which would be a serious effect.
2: Let's listen to Balder. Balder is a, is a male narwhal, so presumably he has one of those big tusks. He was a little male. <laughs> he has a little tusk. Okay, let's hear what he has to say. Shh. What I'm hearing there are clicks and then like a cry, mm-hmm. clicks and a cry. Is that what mm-hmm. we're
4: hearing? Yeah. So the clicks are certainly clicks by all kinds of animals that are around there that are clicking for you know whatever reason. Maybe they're they're foraging. The other sounds you hear would be what we presume are communication sounds. Those cries. You yes. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know you have to realize that we're so early on in in the studies of these animals that there's very little we've actually proven. Um, but it's assumptions based on, you know, studies done in other toothed whales like dolphins and so
2: on. And do they use them at every depth or do the calls change depending on whether or not the whale is at the surface or if the whale is is diving? The vast majority of
4: these calls that we have sort of lumped into this, you know, big category of social calls because we assume they are for communication, uh, they, they tend to occur near the surface. But it also makes sense because that is where the narwhals spend most of their time, which means that that's also where they're going to bump into other narwhals that they may know or you know, that they, they would want to communicate with.
2: Finally, Susanna, I can suspect we know what the answer is to this, but would like to hear it anyway. What's the closest that you've gotten to a narwhal, um, and, and what is it like to be so close to such an incredible creature?
4: Well, I've stood in the water with my hand on a narwhal while it was being instrumented with with our equipment, and it's, uh, this is funny, this is difficult for me. Um, It's a very, it's the kind of thing you don't forget. You're in awe, basically. Uh, This animal is is, uh, superbly adapted to its environment and has done just fine, you know, without encountering humans for <laughs> millions of years, and, and now suddenly things are changing so rapidly for them in their environment, in, in more ways than one. I mentioned the, the industrial stuff, but it's also the waters are warming, there's maybe not going to be ice in the summer any longer, and those are fundamental changes, and so we could so easily just be responsible for them disappearing.
1: Susanna Blackwell is a bioacoustician with Greenridge Sciences.
2: I just realized, Seth, that the instrument that Susanna and I were trying to name was not a trumpet. I I guessed wrong. I think she meant a kazoo.
1: Well, you know, I noticed that they use clicks a lot, and that's just like the bats, right? I mean, if you could hear bats, they kind of sound like clicks, too. And uh, from an engineering perspective, you know, clicks have all the frequencies of the audio spectrum. So I'm sure that's important. That's that's probably what gives them the, the distance information or the radar information or something like that. I mean, obviously these whales are good engineers or engine, <laughs> have been well engineered by evolution in any case.
2: Right, and they depend on those sounds to communicate with their family and their friends, because it sounds like they do have friends. And it's very touching to hear that, like us, they depend on their social and familiar relationships and that they're encountering environmental changes that are presenting challenges to maintaining them.
1: Yeah, well, it's another case in which social animals tend to be very intelligent. Whales, after all, are said to be quite smart. Every call for help in the non-human world is audible. Chemical messaging also occurs. Next up, when we think outside the voice box, we learn that it's not always easy being green. As we continue to shelter in place, it's stories from the non-human world. It's Let's Take a Pause on Big Picture Science. Humans are wielding whatever weapons they have to defend themselves against a dangerous virus. But imagine for a moment that the scary threat in your life was a giant hairy monster opening up its maw to chomp down on you. Well, this is the situation that some plants face. Today we have greater insights into their strategy for defense and how they sound the alarm when under attack. By bioengineering a fluorescent protein into a plant, a team of scientists can watch it light up when it's being threatened and where the all-hands-on-deck message actually goes.
2: Simon Gilroy is a professor in the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As a research scientist who studies how plants sense and respond to the world, his experiments are designed to produce quantitative data— But for as how he feels about his subjects, he's not neutral.
5: I teach an introductory biology class on plant biology, and we start off with, I'm going to tell you why plants are 11 on the 1 to 10 scale of awesomeness.
2: If you're not already convinced about this, okay, fair enough. You're a member of the clamorous animal kingdom, not the silent chlorophyll-producing world. But that potted philodendron in the corner, well, it's more like
5: you than you know. Plants have exactly the same problems that we have, that sometimes the world is not a nice place to be. And if a plant's being eaten, it doesn't have the luxury of running away.
2: But that doesn't mean it's without options. Plants are good at producing chemicals, so they can make toxins or something that tastes bad to act as a deterrent. And now we have some
1: insight, literally, how they do this. In order to understand how chemical signals travel throughout a plant, Dr. Gilroy and his team engineered some plants to fluoresce when attacked.
5: That's right, they light up. The reason the plants are glowing green is because we took a gene from a jellyfish, and that gene makes a protein that naturally glows green. And then they would watch, under a microscope,
1: how the plant responds to a threat, such as being besieged by a fuzzy six-legged
5: terror. The caterpillar starts chewing on the leaf, and you imagine the leaf is made up of thousands and thousands of cells, and those cells are being broken open by the caterpillar munching on it. And that is a really big stress.
2: They did one more thing in order to watch what happens next, that is, to the poor plant being attacked. They engineered it so that the fluorescent protein is switched on in the presence of a substance within the cell called a calcium ion. When the calcium levels go up, the plant glows brightly
5: calcium spikes increases in calcium levels within a cell carry information and trigger things and so one of the great examples of that is the reason that your heart is beating at the moment is because within the muscle cells of the heart there are spikes of calcium being produced and the calcium levels go up and that triggers a muscle contraction and then the calcium levels go down and the muscles relax so that calcium change is triggering the biology of your heart that theme is carried through biology so same deal with plants. They have spikes of calcium that go up and down inside their cells, and those trigger the downstream responses.
1: And so the plants start to glow bright green at the location where the damage is occurring. But then researchers were in for a
5: surprise. It was really sort of unexpected when we saw it. So, you know, if you pick up a leaf in the fall and look at it, you can see all the veins across the leaf. Those veins are the plumbing system of the plant. And in the plants, our engineered plants that glow in response to these signals, we see that that plumbing system lights up in a wave, moves through the plant. And this was the super exciting and really unexpected bit. It moves down through all of that plumbing, that vascular system, and then goes past the shoot and out into other leaves.
2: And this isn't like those time-lapse videos showing plants slowly turning in the sun or opening their leaves. These chemical signals move fast.
5: And it's all in real time. So we can watch the glow progress through the plant. We can see where it goes. And so it's letting us really for the first time visualize this information moving in real time through the plant. So it's clear that plants have a
1: complex internal signaling system. One part of the plant can send signals to another part of the plant to tell it what's going on. So the more that Simon Gilroy and his team learn about plant communication the more impressed they become because, well, for one, the plant signaling doesn't stop at the leaf's edge. Plants have buddies.
2: Now, plants can sense their world, and they can send out signals, and we'll describe some of those experiments that you've done. Can we describe the plants, however, as communicating?
5: Yeah, so they clearly have an internal signaling system. And that's the area that we work on, where one part of the plant can send signals to another part of the plant to inform it what's going on. And there's also some really elegant and just very nice experimentation that says that an individual plant can send information to another individual plant. Things like, when an insect is chewing on the leaves of one plant, volatile chemicals are released, and those chemicals blow in the wind get to a plant nearby and that plant has sensors and it perceives that volatile chemical and it will switch on its own defenses so there's clearly information flowing both within the organism but also between organisms
2: you didn't contradict me on my use of the word communicating so it's not a matter of semantics to which you're sensitive (laughs) we could we can say that plants communicate
5: yeah communication is information exchange And we're inevitably, we're going to use the language that we use to describe how human beings, how we operate as far as taking in information and processing it, when we're talking about plants, because that's the realm that we understand. And plants clearly are not animals. They're not green animals. They're going to do things a little bit differently. But I don't think there's a problem in using the language to try and and tease apart what they're doing.
2: Well, I think this question will be on some people's mind, is the plant feeling pain when that caterpillar chomps down on it?
5: So that kind of depends on what you think pain really means. So there is clearly a signal being generated, so the receptors for wounding and damage are being triggered, and there is information which is being passed to the rest of the organism, in this case it would be to the rest of the plant, to trigger responses which are sort of the defense responses, the way of dealing with that absolute immediate damage There's no brain and there's no nervous system. And so we usually think that the processing of the feeling of pain requires that processing component to it. And those structures don't exist in plants.
2: So that's not a definite no. (laughs)
5: Um, I I think, again, it just gets down to we inevitably use the language of how humans perceive the world and how we process information and what happens to us put other organisms in context. And I think that is an absolutely appropriate thing to do because how else are we going to think about how these things operate? So there's damage, there's information, and there's response. Whether that's pain, that gets down to what you think your definition of pain is.
2: Simon, do you own any pets?
5: Oh, absolutely, yeah. A couple of cats.
2: Would you ever bite down on your cat's leg?
5: Mm, I know better than to do that.
2: Okay. But you know that would create a lot of pain for your cat. So I'm yeah, wondering yeah. if when you're working with plants, if you ever hesitate in what you need to do to them to test their receptors because they need to be damaged in some way. And, and do you ever pause and wonder if you should do it?
5: Um, yeah, no, I don't think that at the moment we think that the information is being processed in the same way that, for instance, a mammal would process that information. Um, But yeah, it's a really interesting question. I don't think I have a really great answer for you for it.
2: That is a good answer, though. Now, when plants do sense that something is attacking them, Uh, they have a range of options. They have an arsenal, and I wonder if you could give us an overview of um, the diversity in that arsenal of responses.
5: Yeah, again, it's just the approach that plants are going to have is probably going to be around making things because that's what plants are really good at doing. They have lots of productivity. They make lots of sugars from photosynthesis. And so if you keep that in the back of your mind, some of the rapid responses are going to be things like making toxins. And so a lot of the drugs that we use today come from plants. And the reason they have such big biological activities on humans is not because the plants are being altruistic and making them to sort of help with heart disease and things like that. They are, they are making them to affect animals to stop them from eating them. So there's gonna be a lot of things like toxins which are produced. There's chemicals which just taste bad. uh, And those are gonna be deterrents. There are proteins. um, There's this great example of of plants making a protein that doesn't directly kill insects. What it does is it gets into the gut of the insect and just stops the gut from being able to digest food. And again, it's all built around the, the chemical deterrent world then, because plants are about building things and making things, another set of responses is going to be at the level of development. So if you chop a branch off a plant, then many times what the plant's response is is to go like, oh, well, (laughs) that's unfortunate. You know what I should do? I'm going to make another branch. And they'll just do this replacement strategy where, because they can build themselves again and again and again, providing the damage is not too big, their long-term response is a developmental growth one, which is just, I'm just going to build more of me and I'm going to grow my way out of this problem.
2: Well, that's definitely a way in which plants differ from animals, because if a lion chews off my arm, unfortunately, (laughs) I cannot grow another arm. Yes.
5: Just go outside and look at plants and uh, look at a tree. And the theme of a tree is it's just repeating itself again and again. There's a branch that branches into a branch that branches into a branch, and there are leaves, and all the leaves are the same, and it's it's these almost like modules which are just made again and again and again. And that's part of the strategy that plants have adopted to dealing with the world, is they make modular organisms because you can rebuild the modules again and again. Our way of dealing with the world is really different. So if the lion comes to chew on you, the appropriate response is to run away screaming. And that's a really different way of dealing with that sort of damage. And it's because we don't have that rooted to the spot coupled to the immense amount of productivity that you get by being photosynthetic.
2: Do you think plants are intelligent?
5: Um, Well, what do you mean by intelligence, Molly? I mean, (laughs) again, we're using the, the language of humans to try and explain biology. And again, I think that is a really... Appropriate thing to try and do because that's going to help us with understanding But it really depends on what you mean by intelligence plants take in information And I would argue they're probably better at it than we are because we have the luxury of we don't really have to know What's going on if something bad is going on? You don't precisely have to know what's going on to get up and walk away, but if you're a plant You have to know exactly what is happening to you because you have to respond, and the response is going to be the appropriate response to defend yourself or grow in the right way, or whatever is the correct thing to do. Plants can take in the color of light, the intensity of light, whether they're watered or not, carbon dioxide levels, you know, lots of pieces of information, and integrate all of that information together in order to have the correct output. So at that level, they are taking in information, processing it, and triggering appropriate responses. Whether that you call that intelligence, I think is entirely up to you. Um, I just call it awesome. I mean, it is remarkable how they do it without a brain.
2: If you could adopt one sensory system that a plant has for a day, (laughs) which would it be?
5: Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, you know, there's a hidden half of the plants that we don't usually think about, which is the root systems. And so we see, you know, the leaves, and we know leaves sense light and temperature and lots of other things, but so there's a root system that reveals a lot about the earth. And so plants have the ability to sense concentrations and nutrients and gradients of water. And that would be a really different view of the world from the world that we inhabit and the sensory systems that we use. So that might be a really, really interesting insight into the dynamics that are going on underneath our feet that we just usually just never really think about. Of
2: course, you'd have to stay put for the day if you had roots.
5: Yeah, I didn't say it would be easy. (laughs) Yeah, it would bring you into the world of the challenges, but also the opportunities that you get by having that way of dealing with the environment around you. So plants have access to resources that humans don't. And so they're just different approaches to solving the conundrum of how do I stay alive and reproduce on the earth.
2: Well, Simon Gilroy, thank you so much for joining us today and making a very strong case for plants being awesome. (laughs) Well, thanks, Molly.
1: Simon Gilroy is a professor in the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Well, I guess the big picture here is that as human-centric as we are, right, uh, we're worried about the virus and so forth, you know, the plants and animals of this planet, they have to battle things that are, you know, at least as dangerous every day, all day, and it's just impressive to me how well-equipped they are to do that.
2: And I like the idea that of all the cool abilities of a plant, Dr. Gilroy is most impressed with the root system, and that resonates with all of us who are reaching out to support one another and who value the human support system. Well, really, it's the human support system along with our pets and plants.
1: And although we've said this before, here's a final thought again. There's a lot of misinformation out there about the outbreak, including pseudoscience remedies and false statements about how you can test yourself at home. Look, if it sounds incredible, it probably is. So check the facts with reputable scientific sources like your local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Follow the science.
2: We couldn't do this show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you to them for their help and for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
1: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Junior Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the longevity of civilizations. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners, who I presume are sheltering in place.
2: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Let's Take a Pause. If you'd like to hear it again, or you want to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, including our coverage of the coronavirus outbreak. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard. Stay safe, everyone.